Welcome to the Song of Songs. This is a podcast based on the book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, otherwise known as the Song of Songs. This is your host, John, and in the last episode, we looked at the introduction of the book, which is chapter 1, verse number 1. That particular verse reads, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And I know it doesn't seem like we should get a lot of doctrinal information out of that particular verse or a lot of marital advice out of that particular verse, but I think I did an okay job at trying to get some good out of the verse, and I think that you should go back and listen to that particular episode if you did not get a chance to already. Of course, I may just be a little bit biased, and you'll have to forgive me if I come off that way. I guess I am a little bit biased. But in this particular episode, we're going to look at verse number two, and we're going to begin looking at the actual content of the book itself. Song of Solomon 1 and verse number 2 says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Now, one of the great difficulties to studying out the Song of Solomon is trying to figure out who was speaking it in a given moment in time. In this particular verse, though, that is not a problem to us at all, because it's clearly written from the perspective of the bride. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And the verses go on and continue making mention of the king, making mention of his benefits that he has given to her and the relationship that he has with her. So this is obviously spoken from the perspective of the bride. Now, this phrase, this first phrase, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, that phrase shows to us the desire of the bride. The desire of the bride is for the beloved to lavish upon her all of his affections, all of his love, all of his blessings that he may be able to bestow upon her. She's wanting him to pour it on her. And uh, there's a commentator that is very worthwhile if you uh, have any interest in reading a little bit more behind the cultural practices maybe of the day. George Burroughs, who was a preacher in the 19th century, is definitely worthwhile. His notes on Song of Solomon were, were very helpful to me as I studied this book some months ago. But he notes that there's a custom of that day uh, for the bridegroom and the bride to meet outside of the city in camps, basically. That there would be a couple of camps. That there would be a bride's camp and a bridegroom's camp and uh, that this particular phrase might have been written uh, in anticipation of that first meeting. And so the bridegroom has come out, he's established this camp for the purpose of meeting the bride as she travels out to him, and that the bride, in anticipation of this first meeting, is saying, you know, I just want to be with him, I just want him to kiss me, I just want him to show his love and affection for me, I want this this period, this season of, of distance, of separation between me and him, to be over with. I want to be with him. I want to have communion and fellowship with him. And uh, th that might be the context behind which this particular phrase is written. Regardless of the context, though, this phrase teaches us a few things about the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom that I think would be profitable for us. The first thing that we're going to pay attention to is the first word of verse number two. That little word, let, is very important, and I think that there is not an unimportant word in Scripture. I believe with all of my heart that every word is there uh, on purpose and should be paid attention to, and most oftentimes we neglect these little words like the word let, uh, because let shows a sign of consent. It shows a sign that something is outside of my own control. When you say let things be or let go, you're saying I can't control these things anymore. So she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
She is asking for something that she can't do for herself. So let indicates that the bride can do nothing to force this relationship. She can do nothing to force this showing of affection. She's asking him to bestow his affection upon her. And so as a result of that and her inability to make him do anything, she says, let him. It's a sign that she's consenting to it, that if he were to show his affection to her, she would let him do that, that she's open to that. That word let is very important to us. We need to remember when we're looking at this verse and when we are looking at this book in general that the beloved here, the, the husband, the man in this relationship, he's a king. He's the king of Israel and he represents a person of great honor, great nobility, great authority, great respect. And so we need to remember, of course, us in America, we don't really have this mentality of how we uh, encounter or how we deal with how we treat monarchs. But uh, in other places of the word, world, there's still a little bit of this that's, that's seen. Nobody can just walk into the presence of a king or of a queen. You've got to have an appointment, right? You've got to be called. You have to have some special favor that's shown to you. We think about Esther's relationship with the king in the book of Esther and how that she, even though she was the queen, she could not access the king unless she was called or unless she was shown special favor when she uh, when she approached him. And so we need to remember that uh, in the context of this relationship, even though she is you know, being married to him and even though they are in love with each other and even though they've shown you know, these great deals of affection towards each other, she still can't access him unless he is willing to be accessed. And so she's saying, let him show his affection to me. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So we need to remember, nobody can approach the king except for those who are bidden, those who are called. Uh, so this call that the bride is making, this desire that she has, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, this is a call for the king to condescend to her level. She can't reach his level. She can't you know, ascend to where he is. So he has to descend to condescend himself down to her level. Uh, we also place in our mind that, you know, the great honor that it was to be granted access to a monarch, that, you know, to be, be given access to a king. I mean, that was, that was a special thing. It was a higher honor to be able to kiss the ground where the king walked. It was an even higher honor just to be able to, to kiss his feet. One of the highest honors that a person could, could have is to be permitted to kiss the hand or the ring of that particular king. And so consider this request that the bride is making. It's no small thing. She's not saying, you know, I want to be in your presence. She's not merely just saying that. She's not even just saying, you know, I want to kiss the ground that you walk because I honor you, because I love you, because I want to be with you, because I want to show my respect for you. She's not saying, I want to kiss your feet. She's not even saying, I want to kiss your hand. She's not even saying, I want to kiss your cheek. She's saying, I want you to kiss me. And so this is a great honor that she's asking for the king to bestow upon her, that he would kiss her with the kisses of his mouth. And that's not just redundancy. That's an expression that shows to us it's not just, you know, uh, like we say, you know, a kiss on the cheek or something like that. We understand that in that culture and in that practice, even, you know, the men would greet each other with a brotherly kiss. And we get that idea and we get that picture clearly seen throughout scripture. So the phrase, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, this is mouth to mouth. This is a kiss of affection, of love that you only share with people who are closest to you and, and most often in a romantic, uh, intimate kind of way. So she's asking him not only to come down from his high place, She's asking him uh, to enter into her presence and to kiss her with the kisses of his mouth. So this shows that she recognizes him to be 
a, a king of a very great tenderness. That it shows the tenderness that the the king has towards the bride. That he would even entertain this kind of of phrase. That he would entertain this kind of request. We've already noted in other places, as we'll get further into the scripture, that this woman was most likely an outsider to Israeli customs and practice and to the people. She, I believe, personally believed that she was Pharaoh's daughter, and I, and we've got scripture for that. If you're interested in that and you missed the very first episode of this particular podcast, you can go back and listen. That We explain some of those things in that. So this is not only you know a subject to the king, this is an outsider, Completely and totally. And so for the king to show this affection towards her, it's a very high honor. And so let's try to apply this this passage of scripture just a little bit before we continue on to the next phrase and look at the reason why she wants this affection poured out upon her. So first, a spiritual application. If we take Solomon to represent the Lord Jesus Christ and the bride to represent the church in general and the Christian in particular, then we see that Christ's condescension to earth and him coming down to our level, that had to be motivated by love. The scripture tells us in John 1 verse number 14 that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And John 3:16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the way in which he shows his love for us, that he condescended himself towards us. Philippians chapter number 2 speaks about this as well, that he made himself of no reputation, that he took upon himself the form of a servant. Why? Because he was motivated out of love. He wanted to show his love that he had for us, and the only way for him to do that was to step out of his throne room in heaven and to condescend himself to this earth. We also see not only Christ's condescension uh, uh, to earth being motivated by love, we also see his initiation of his love, that it's he who sets out first in this display of love. The scripture tells us in Romans 5 and verse number 8 that God committeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now we were neither loving him nor lovely in ourselves, but God committeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we see here, it was not us. You know, we were not the ones who initiated this relationship with God. God did not send his son because we were, you know, wanting him to redeem us. We were perfectly content in our trespasses and in our sins. But Jesus Christ came to us when we were not looking for him. He bled for us when we cried out, crucify him. I mean, he initiated this love. And even the scripture tells us in John chapter number 6 that no man can come to the Father except he's drawn. The Holy Spirit has to be a work in our life. And, you know, reproving us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. First John 4.19 tells us that we love him because he first loved us. The only reason why we can even desire him to pour his affections out upon us is because we are we have seen and have been exposed to his great love that he has for us. Speaking of this great love that he has for us, this also teaches us about the tenderness of Christ. That he would not turn us away even when we make such an outlandish claim or outlandish request as, you know, Lord, I want you to condescend to where I am and I want you, you know, to be my servant in a sense and to uh, take upon yourself the my sins that I've sinned against you. He doesn't turn us away. The scripture tells us there again in John chapter number 6 that all that come to him, he will in no wise cast out. There's nobody who's ever desired for God to do a work in their life that he's ever turned them away. Now, there's some people who have ulterior motives in their 
religious affections. You know, they want God to bless them, and their sense of blessing is, you know, I want money in my bank, or I want, you know, a fancy car, and I want no troubles and trials in this life. That's not what God promises us, but God promises us himself. He promises us that, yeah, there'll be times where we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but he will be with us. There is a great tenderness that is seen in Christ. We are bruised and we are broken, but the scripture tells us in Isaiah 42 and verse number 3 that a bruised reed shall he not break. Even though we are bruised and on the verge of being destroyed ourselves, he doesn't break us. He doesn't just finish us off. He nurtures us and he builds us and he remakes us. He goes on in Isaiah 42 to say that the smoking flax shall he not quench. And what a great promise is given to us in this passage of Scripture. The scripture also tells us in James chapter number 1 that if any man lack wisdom, that he can ask God for that wisdom and that God will give it to him because he gives to all men liberally and he upbraids them not. He, he won't you know, chasten us for us acknowledging the fact that we need him. Then we also consider the honor that is being bestowed upon the bride. When the Lord grants this request and when he pours his affections out upon us, there's a great honor that's placed upon us <clears throat> that we are no longer just subjects to the king. We are the object of his affection. The scripture tells us in 1 John chapter number 3, in verse number 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Oh, what honor has been given to us that we should be adopted, that we should be grafted into the promises of Abraham, that we should be brought into the family of God, and that we should be made kings and priests unto our God. What a great honor the Lord has given to those that are in Christ Jesus. So moving on from a spiritual application, let's consider a few things to maybe try to strengthen our marriages for those of us who are married, or uh, for those of us who might not be married, for us to consider what a true godly relationship might look like. So first, the responsibility of the husband is seen in this phrase. The wife is asking the husband to bestow his love upon her. And, and it's not just to, to show me your love, show me your affection, but to show it with great tenderness and warmth like Jesus Christ shows his affection to the church. Husbands, we should not be cold and callous and unapproachable to our wives. We should not live our life in such a way uh, that our wife has to ask whether or not we love them. They should know because we're constantly pouring out in tenderness and warmth and kindness of heart our affection and our love for them. We're showing them that we love them, that we care for them by the way that we interact with them on a day-to-day -day level. It's not just words. I love you are more than just words. And the scripture teaches us that as well. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So husband, we are commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So don't be cold and shut off from your wife. Be open. Be accessible to her. Be the, the kind of person that she would be willing to come up and say, you know, I, I need your affection. There are some times where my wife says, you know, I just need to be babied a little bit. I've had a bad day. And so I'll play with her hair. Or I'll, you know, just hug her. Or I'll just do whatever I need to do to make her know that I love her, that I care about her, and that I don't want to see her broken and cast down and cast out. I want to show her the tenderness and warmth of Christ by showing her the tenderness and warmth that I have for her as well. Also, husbands, we, we see, we ought to be initiating this affection and we ought to be doing it often. Don't wait for your wife to say I love you to tell her that you love her as well. Be the first one from time to time to say, you know what, honey, I love you. Honey, you look good today. Honey, 
I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you do for this house. I appreciate the work that you do in this marriage, in raising our kids. I appreciate everything that you do. Be the one who brings it up. Be the one who makes it a sweet and tender moment. Be the one who says, honey, I love you. You you are the, the pride of my life. You are the joy of my life. Aside from the grace given to me and God through J- Jesus Christ and the salvation, you are the greatest thing to ever happen to me. I love you. I, I, I want you to know that. I want you to know that there is none other besides you. You are it for me, baby. You, you, are, you are the girl for me. We ought to be initiating that kind of conversation and that kind of affection. Also, though, husbands, and this is a real challenge to us, we ought to keep ourselves honorable so that we can give honor to our wife. We ought to make it an honorable thing for them to be able to say, I am his wife. We ought to maintain the kind of character that she would be proud to be married to us, that she would be proud for us to show her affection. So that's kind of the responsibility of the husband that we see. We also see the joy of the wife in this. The joy of the wife is to, is to delight in the law or in the love of her husband, to delight in the love of her husband. That's the joy of the wife. You know, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This was what she wanted. This was what she wanted more than anything else. She wanted to be with him. She wanted him to pour his affections upon her. That should be the delight of the wife. She enjoys them, she wants them. And it also should be the desire of the wife to boldly ask her husband for these things. There are some days where the husband is just ignorant to what is going on in the life of the wife. Women are complex, and I hear through the sound of uh, the universe a hearty amen from every married man out there. Uh, women are complex. You, you never really can peg down exactly what's going on in their heart and their mind. They're emotional creatures as well. And so sometimes there are things about women that we just don't understand and we get, and sometimes they just need to come to us and say, look, I'm having a bad day. I need to be talked to. I need to be encouraged. I need to be strengthened. And we ought to live the kind of life to make them want to come to us, to, to make them know and understand that we're not going to cast them out and that we're not going to reprove them because they're being they're having a moment of weakness or because they're having a moment of sadness or because they're having a moment of difficulty we ought to make it to where they can have confidence to come to us and so may that be a challenge to us who are married the second phrase of this particular verse is for thy love is better than wine and again there's that little word for that tells us that the reason why she's wanting his affection is because she esteems his love as being better than wine Now, this contrast between love and wine is very important, so we need to consider this. Wine, and this is not necessarily talking about fermented alcohol, but wine is representative of many different things in Hebrew culture. If they had wine, then that means that God was good to them. That God was good to them in providing a bountiful harvest. That, you know, they may have planted, they may have sown it, you know, they, they may have done all the, the, the work and labor and tilling up the, the ground and all of these different things, but if there's no rain, if there's no sunshine, there's no growth. 
that they are completely dependent to God for their harvest. And so if they have wine, that's evidence that God has been good to them and providing for them all the different things that they need and protecting, you know, the fruit from uh, from the, the foxes and from, from the birds of the air and from all the other varmints that might be out to get their uh, get their fruit. And so this shows us that God was good to them in providing a bountiful harvest. It's also a rest from your labors. You know, if you're drinking of the wine, that, that means that the harvest has already passed. You've already done all the work in the wine is here. You're enjoying the fruits of your labors. You're not only enjoying the fruits of your labors, but you're also taking a rest, taking a break from the hard work that was required to make that wine. And then also, uh, wine was often drunk socially and at feasts. We see that throughout scripture, uh, that it was a community kind of thing and that it was it was a time of rejoicing and it was a time of community. It was a time you know, of enjoying family, family and friends and culture and all these other things. I mean, wine was very important to the Hebrew, po- Hebrew people. And so for the woman to say, thy love is better than wine, that's really saying something. And so let's consider some aspects about this love uh, that might help us in understanding why this love was better than wine. Now, one thing that we would note is that the Hebrew word, and this is even seen in the King James Bible, if you have the King James notes, the actual translator's notes, you'll see in the margin uh, that it says, Hebrew, thy loves, beside a, a, a note for thy love. It says that the Hebrew word is plural. That's essentially what that's getting at. The Hebrew is, thy loves are better than wine. Uh, The love here that is seen from Solomon to the bride and from God, from Christ to the church and from the husband to the wife, this love ought to be complex. There there ought to be layers to it. It it can be expressed in many different ways. So that's one reason why the Hebrew renders renders it as loves because this love is shown to us in, in many different ways. Also, there's a depth to this love that uh, it teaches us that love should always be in abundance and that there should never be a short supply of love. Whereas with wine, eventually you run out. Uh, There is a quality to this love because it comes from Solomon. It comes from the person who she loved more than anything else. This love was greater than wine because it came from Solomon. So there's a quality to love based upon who it comes from. But there's also a singularity to love, and this is why the translators translate it as love, because this love is, even though it's complex, even though though there's a depth to it, even though there's a multiplicity to it, if I can use that big word, uh, there's also a singularity to it as well. It's a singular love. Even though it's shown in many different ways, even though you know it's always in abundance, even though you know there's this, this great complexity to it, this love is also at the same time very simple. And it's pointed, it's focused. So a spiritual application of this, the love of Christ can be is greater than anything else that this world has to offer. It's greater than anything else this world has to offer because of the expression of this love. That God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's also greater than anything else that the world has to offer because of its abundance and because of its author. The Bible tells us that God is rich in his mercy and in his grace towards us. It also tells us in Ephesians 3, verses 17 through 19, Paul is speaking to the church and he's wishing that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. He says, I desire for you to be able to comprehend the the length 
and the breadth and the depth and the height. This is every aspect of measurement for them, right? And and to, to really measure out, to really comprehend, to really know and understand what is the measure of the love of God that passes all knowledge. It's great because it is in great abundance. It's great because it is the love of Christ. That it extends to us from the one who is greater than anything else. He is the author of everything good. The Bible tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. So, this love is greater than wine because of whose love it is. But it's also greater than wine because of its singularity. The Bible tells us, yes, that God loved the world. But it also tells us that God loves us individually. It tells, tells us in John 1 and verse number 12 that as many as received him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If we were to finish John 3.16, yes, God loves the world, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever extends to everybody. It extends to me in particular. Paul says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then he makes it personal, of whom I am chief. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save me, and he came into the world to save you as well, individually. We see the spiritual application that the love of Christ is greater than anything else that the world has to offer because of its expression, because of its abundance, because of its author, because of its singularity, but we also need to make a marital application to this. And the marital application that I would make is simple. That is, the only way for us to really, truly love the best way is to love God's way. The only way for me to love my wife the way that I need to love my wife is if I know and understand some aspect as to the love that God has for me in Christ Jesus. And so when I love my wife the way that Jesus loves me, and when she loves me the way that Jesus loves her, when this happens, there's nothing greater in the world than for a husband and a wife just to enjoy each other. There have been hard times in my life. There have been hard times in my marriage where we had next to nothing. We, we have coined expressions such as desperation soup, where we basically just go and we take everything that we've got in the cabinet and put it all together, trying to make it till payday. I mean, we've, we've had moments where, you know, God has fed us by the ravens, so to speak. I mean, he, he has sent church members by our house at certain times with a, with a meal, and, and we, we can hardly tell them, you know, you don't understand how needed this was right now. We've been through difficult times. We've been t- through times where, you know, I, through the, the pride and conceit of my heart, was not as good and faithful a husband as I needed to be, that I wasn't as warm and affectionate and tender towards her as I needed to be. There's been some difficult times because of circumstances, because of sin. There's been hard times, but you know what? The love that we can share together in those hard times is greater than just about anything else you can ever have. The proverb tells us that it's greater to live in a small house with next to nothing and have love than to live in a big house, have a dinner of a stalled ox, have steak for dinner every night, and there's hatred and contention and strife. My friends, we ought to be loving and enjoying the love, not only that Christ has for us, but also the love that should be shared in our family as well. We ought to be cherishing this love and desiring affection from the one that we love more than anything else and desiring, not because we doubt it, it's not because we doubt it that we say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, but it's because 
we know that we are weak and that we need him and that we want him in our life and we want him to be warm and compassionate and tender towards us. It's not because we're worthy of it. It's not because we deserve it, but it's because we know that he's faithful to give it. That's the only reason why we can boldly come before him because we know that he's commanded us to. We know that he's provided a way for us. We know that he will never turn us aside, that he will never cast us out, and that we will always have, so long as we maintain that heart of humility, we will always have a friend in the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us to understand this. May the Lord help us to apply this in our lives. Well, next time we're going to consider Song of Solomon chapter 1 and verse number 3. And there's a little bit more to that verse. It's a little bit longer. So may the Lord help us as we prepare that and prepare our heart to receive that. Let me go ahead and read that verse for us so that we can be thinking about it. The scripture says, speaking about the husband, Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as an ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. And we're going to be talking about the blessed, sweet, and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, may God bless you and keep you in his love.
But he notes that there's a custom of that day 